This morning's sermon text reading comes from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It is a a joy, uh, truly, to be with you. I'm not saying that because it's just the right thing to say when you come up here to a pulpit, but truly it is a joy for me and my family uh, to be able to worship with you this week or today and to spend time with you this week. Uh, I know things didn't go fully as they were planned, uh, but know me and my wife are still committed to you guys, still committed to coming to the city of Detroit. Uh, But more importantly than what we need now is not to just hear from me, Uh, but to hear God speaking through his word. So let me pray for us to that end. Father, we confess what your church has always confessed, that if your word is faithfully preached, then it is not the preacher who is speaking, but ultimately it is you. So we ask this morning that you would speak to us. We come in here as individuals with various situations and circumstances, Some of us are joyful and excited, and some of us uh, are literally walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But in all of that, we need to hear from you. So would you give us a word this morning to sustain us? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, One of my favorite scenes in all of the Gospels is a scene that comes right before our text this morning. In the section before what we just read, we find Jesus in a boat with his fearful, faithless, and frustrated disciples. As they are sailing across the sea, a storm breaks out that is so strong that the disciples believe that they are about to die. In all of this chaos, when the disciples are likely screaming at the top of their lungs, 
with the wind blowing so hard and the waves crashing all around them, we find Jesus taking a nap. We find Jesus asleep. The disciples quickly wake him up and say to him, Master, we are perishing. Jesus wakes up and perhaps wipes the the crusties out of his eyes. And he stands up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. And the Bible tells us that the wind and the seas listen to his voice and there is peace. As the disciples are witnessing all of this take place, they ask, who then is this that the wind and the seas obey him? The disciples, upon seeing this extraordinary event take place, ask themselves, who is this man? Who is this person who stands before us? Who is this Jesus? You see, this question of who is Jesus, who is this man, is the dominating question in the book of Luke. Luke writes this gospel according to Luke chapter 1, verse 4, so that you and I would have certainty concerning who Jesus is and what he has done. Is Jesus just a religious leader? Is he just another zealot who is leading a fruitless rebellion? Is Jesus just a teacher whose teachings are influential today? Is Jesus just a moral figure whose life is worthy of imitation? You see, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is so much more than any of those things. I'd argue that all of us from time to time must come back to this question of who is Jesus because we are tempted to make Jesus into someone who's a tad bit more tameable. We are tempted to make Jesus and and dress him up so that he is a bit more socially acceptable, to polish off his rough edges so that he is more believable to the surrounding culture. Luke, like the rest of the Gospels, confronts us with the reality that we have a mini Jesus, that we have made Jesus into our own image, and this Jesus is far too small. This recreated Jesus is a Jesus that has some power and some authority, but the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that Luke presents to us this morning, the Jesus in our text is one who has all power and authority. Our text this morning is sandwiched between two stories that demonstrate Jesus's power over things both seen and unseen. In the story that precedes this one, Jesus displays his power over creation, and the story afterwards, Jesus displays his power over disease and death, but our text this morning showcases that Jesus displays his power over the devil. It's a scriptural illustration of what John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I wanna draw our attention this morning to one main point, and it is this, King Jesus has broken Satan's power over all those who belong to him. King Jesus has broken Satan's power over all those who belong to him. I want you to see this main point by looking at our text under three headings. I want you to see the reach of Jesus, then I want you to see the reign of Jesus, and then lastly, I want you to see the responses to Jesus. So the reach of Jesus, the reign of Jesus, and the responses to Jesus. First, the reach of Jesus. The curtain of our text is raised, and we are greeted with Jesus stepping out of the boat 
onto dry land in what any pious Jew in Jesus's day would consider to be a living hell. Luke is painting a picture of a region and a man who are both under desperate conditions. Luke wants us to see the awful state of this region and man so that we would see something of the reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. Up until this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has already had a significant amount of encounters with individuals that would have caused people, the people of his day to view him as problematic, to view him as one who was pr- breaking proper etiquette. You see, Jesus had no problem interacting with people whom the religious leaders of his day would have considered to be unclean. But Jesus is going to take this a step further to a higher level by going out of his way to an unclean place in order to reach this demon-possessed man. This place where Jesus steps off the boat is a place where none would ever dream of going. It's one of those places that when you hear about it, your skin would crawl just upon hearing its name. Uh, A couple of years ago, me and my wife, when we were looking for houses, we would often go into these houses that would be covered with mold on both sides. And as we would enter into these houses, we would try to run out as quickly as we could. You see, that is a, a small picture of how anyone would have thought about this land that Jesus steps into. It's one of those places where, where you avoid at all costs that, there, that, that there's detour signs all around it. And we get a couple of clues about this from our text. First, Luke tells us the name of this country and its location. He tells us in verse 26 that Jesus is standing in the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. As you hear those words, It may not stand out to you as anything of significance, but in the mind, again, of any pious Israelite in Jesus's day, this is a place that you avoid at all costs. It's a place where you wouldn't allow your children to play. It's across from Galilee. It's this place that is filled with pagan worshiping Gentiles. It's a place that is filled with idol worship, and this would be the norm. Not only that, but in verse 27, Jesus mentions that they are near tombs. Jesus is standing in a place of death. He interacts with this man near a cemetery. Again, this would be considered unclean in the minds of the people. And to top it all off, verse 21 mentions that there is a large herd of pigs in the area. Whenever pigs are in an area, you can almost guarantee that there will not be any righteous Israelite present because, again, pigs are unclean. So Gentile territory, pagan worship, cemeteries, idolatry, and pigs, you will not find a more unclean, unrighteous, uninhabitable place in the mind of the people in Jesus's day. You see, no one of Jewish descent would willingly head to this place except for Jesus, a place where no one would go, a place that would have been mocked and belittled, a a place that would have been dragged through the mud in the streets is the very place that you find Jesus heading towards. It's to say that Jesus seems to have this, this bent on going towards places and spaces that are deemed to be God forsaken. As Jesus steps onto the land, 
he is greeted by this man who had demons. That phrase, had demons, is simply meant to communicate that this man is demon-possessed. He's under the influence of one or more evil spirits. In verse 27, we see this man has no clothes and lived or made his dwelling among the tombs. This man had made his home among the dead. He had settled in a cemetery. Verse 29 tells us that there had been times where this man was kept under guard and bound with chains, likely as a means to protect the people from this man. Jesus approaches this man and asks him his name, and the man calls himself Legion in verse 30. The word legion is a Roman military word that speaks of thousands of soldiers. This could be understood literally or figuratively, but either way, Luke wants us to understand that this man who stands before Jesus is completely and utterly enslaved to demonic beings. You see, when Jesus asks this man his name, he can't even answer him because he can only identify himself as one who is possessed by an almost innumerable amount of evil hosts. It's as if this man is effectively saying, I don't know my name anymore. I am a man who is possessed by a host of demons. That is all that I know about myself. You see, there is so much we could say about demon possession and demonic oppression and demons in general. And unfortunately, this isn't the time or place to give a theological defense of these things, but let me go on record to say that the Bible doesn't shy away from mentioning the devil, demons, or spiritual warfare. It isn't something that we should consider only a certain subsect of Christians to believe, but it is something that all Christians believe because the scriptures are clear. 1 Peter in 1 Peter verse five, chapter 5, verse 8 tells us this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Beloved, we shouldn't look for demons under every pew or rock, but we should be aware that we have a great enemy against us. Andrew Wilson writes this, he says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist and that the only demons left were our political opponents. Again, don't miss the terrible condition of this man. Because he was enslaved, he was feared, unloved, avoided, unwelcomed. This man would be covered in lacerations, scabs, infections. He would be a wild man who was unkept and ill, and everyone in this city and region would be against him. Imagine how long he would have had a conversation with someone. Imagine how long it would have been since someone shared a meal with him. Imagine how long it would have been since someone looked at him with care and affection rather than fear and disgust. In the eyes of the, the people of this city, this man ceases to be human. 
This man who is made in the image and likeness of God has that image so marred, so twisted, so reshaped that it was hard to recognize if he was still human. This man who stands before Jesus needs to be healed. He needs to be restored. He needs to be transformed. He needs to be freed. You see, Luke is painting this extraordinary case of demonic oppression for the purpose of showcasing and displaying the transforming power of Jesus Christ. Luke is communicating that Jesus has come across the sea and traveled through a windstorm for the purpose of setting this one man free. You see, this is what Jesus came to do. He came for individuals like this. Jesus in Luke 4 says this about his mission. He says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberties to the captive and recovering of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Beloved, Jesus has come to set this man free from his captivity. What this man needed the most is what Jesus alone could provide. In verse 29, Jesus commands the evil spirit to come out. And in verse 35, that we see that this man is now sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. If you pay close attention to the text, You'll notice that Luke structures this text around who this man was before he met Jesus and who this man was after he met Jesus. In verse 27, he is one who had many demons. In verse 35, we are told that the demons had gone away from this man. In verse 27, he is one who had no clothes, but now in verse 35, he is clothed. In verse 27, he did not live in a house, but among the tombs. But in verse 39, Jesus tells him to go back to his home. In verse 28, he fell down at Jesus's feet and shouted. And now in verse 35, he is sitting at the feet of Jesus. In verse 29, the demon seized him and he was out of control. But in verse 35, he was in his right mind. Beloved, this man is transformed by Jesus right on the spot. While everyone else was afraid of this man, Jesus with one powerful word healed this man. This man goes from being a demon-possessed man to a preacher of the gospel in his hometown. Luke wants us to grasp the reality that there is simply no one who is out of the saving reach of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no sin no person, no situation that is too hard for Jesus to come in and transform. While we may not be enslaved to demonic beings, we are those who find ourselves enslaved to all sorts of sins and vices. Maybe you're in here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, can Christ really change someone like me? You find yourself struggling with the same persistent and nagging sin that won't go away and you're ready to give up because it seems like this is always going to be your struggle. Maybe you're praying for someone and you're discouraged because you're not really sure if they will ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe your marriage is so tension-filled and cold and it's been that way for so long 
that you are not sure if it will ever change. Beloved, hear me, Jesus Christ is able to transform even the most hopeless of people and circumstances. The one who came by, by the word, the one who came and by the word of his power transformed this demon-possessed man is the same one who can transform us and the situations that we find ourselves in. He may not do this instantaneously as we would prefer, but he will over time change his people into his glorious image. Lord willing, uh, I will be called and one day serve as one of your pastors. Now, there's a lot that needs to happen before that will happen before I get here. And I can tell you a lot of things. I can tell you that I don't and I won't have all of the answers. I can promise you that I will disappoint you at some point, but I believe this with all of my being that Jesus Christ is still and will always be in the business of transforming people's lives. And I pray that together as a a people, we would see that happen again and again and again. That as the gospel is preached, as churches are planted, we would see individuals change one person at a time. That's the reach of Jesus, but secondly, notice the reign of Jesus, the reign of Jesus. We not only see Jesus's ability to reach any person or situation, we also see Jesus in this text reigning as a king, specifically over Satan. In verse 28, we read this, and when he saw Jesus, he cried and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. As soon as Jesus steps on the scene, this demon who is speaking through the man knows exactly who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You may not have noticed this, but as you read through the gospels, if you pay close attention, you'll you'll, you'll see that everyone seems to have this need Uh, for Jesus to be explained to them, to, to, to get more information about Jesus, except one group of individuals, and that is the demons. You never have a demon saying, who is this man? Because they know exactly who Jesus is. The scene is astounding. Jesus comes to the shore and the demons who had been terrorizing this countryside through this man, who knows how long it's been, They have created so much fear in the people that they bind this man in change. It is those same demons who are now afraid of Jesus. They know what Jesus has come to do. They know who he is. Notice that the demon confesses that Jesus is the son of the most high God. That phrase most high God is a phrase that is used only a few times in the New Testament. It's an Old Testament title of God that speaks of his exclusive identity as the sovereign king who rules over all things. You see, the demons know that Jesus is a king who rules over all things, which includes them. You get this picture of Jesus placing his his foot on the, the throat of the demons and they beg him not to kill them before it is time. In Genesis chapter 3, 15, We get the first promise of the gospel 
after Adam and Eve fall into sin and listen to the serpents. God comes to them and he curses the serpent, curses the devil and says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. God promises that there will be an offspring of Eve who will destroy the work of the serpents. God promises to send a redeemer who will destroy the work of the devil. And Jesus Christ stands and comes on the scene and begins to undo the work of Satan. You see, the Gospels have this tendency to focus on demonic activity because Jesus, the offspring of the woman, has come to put an end to the work of the devil. And as one writer puts it, all hell was let loose in an effort to thwart his crushing blow. There's a conflict between demons and Jesus, and the demons know that Jesus will ultimately win. This is why in verse 31, they say they beg him not to command them to depart into the abyss. This word abyss is used only a few times in the New Testament. It's the place of the dead. It's a place or realm for evil spirits. It's a place where the demons will be locked away until the final judgment. In verse 32, the demons beg to go into the pigs who are feeding on the hillside and Jesus permits them to go into these pigs. Here's a question, why would Jesus allow for these demons to go into these pigs? Why would he just allow them to go into the lake and drown? It could be that they are unclean animals. I don't know, there's so much about this text that we are still unsure about, but I'm convinced that something deeper is taking place. I think Jesus is giving us this picture of the future judgment on the demons that will take place at the end of the age. We are told by John in the book of Revelation that Jesus himself is going to cast Satan and his demons into the lake of fire, fully and finally crushing our dreaded foe. Luke wants us to know that Christ is a sovereign king who rules over the very powers of hell and darkness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism one of the doctrinal standards of our church asks this question. It says, how does Christ execute the office of a king? It answers it in this way. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. Beloved, in this text, we have Jesus conquering in restraining our great enemy. Jesus is placing the demons under his feet. It is to say that the demons who held this man captive are now held captive by Jesus Christ. That the forces of darkness are no match for the son of the most high God. They are no match for King Jesus. So you and I have nothing to be afraid of in this world that is filled with devils. I don't know if you feel this, but it seems to me that our world feels like it's getting darker and darker every single day. And the temptation for me and for you is to hide, to huddle up, to seclude ourselves, to protect us and our resources as, the, as it seems as it gets harder for the gospel and the church. 
Beloved, Jesus is king. Jesus rules over all things. He rules over every principality and everyone who brings persecution over God's people. So you have nothing to be afraid of. Some of you push back in your head just now and you said, wait a minute, that, that sounds good, but yet we clearly know and see the work of Satan in our world. My conscience still condemns me. Satan's accusations ring louder and louder. God's people are being persecuted. False teaching is rampant. Wait a minute, Demiron, how can all of that be true? Friend, I would respond to you by saying that Satan is a strong foe, but he is not an undefeated foe. Let me see if I can illustrate it in this way. June 6, 1944 is known as D-Day. It's the day that the Allies established a beachhead on, Norm on the European mainland in, Nor in Normandy, France. Looking back in history, war historians say that at that point, when D-Day was successful, the Allies won the war. The moment they established a beachhead on the European mainland, they broke the back of the Nazis. So war historians say that the Allies won this war on principle on D-Day on June 6, 1944. But the Allies' victory was not fully realized until VE Day. VE stands for Victory in Europe. And that took place 11 months later on May 8th, 1945. On D-Day, the defeats of the Nazis was a foregone conclusion. On D-Day, the war was over in principle, but there was a lot of fighting between D-Day and VE Day. There was tons of bloodshed before the actual surrender of the Nazis. In fact, some of the bloodiest battles of World War II occurred between D-Day and VE Day. The Nazis were a defeated enemy, but they were not going down without a fight. They were fighting a losing battle. Beloved, you see, you and I live between God's D-Day and his VE day. We live between the, the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ. This is what theologians call the already and not yet. That when Jesus died on the cross and then rose from the dead, that was God's D-Day. That was God's decisive victory over Satan. And when the second coming of Christ happens, that will be God, that will be our VE day. Speaking of what happened on the cross, listen to what the Apostle Paul says. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through them. Because of God's D-Day, Satan is a defeated enemy. Jesus won the victory, and one day, beloved, he is going to come back and finish him off for good. The Satan's head, his serpent's head is, is crushed, but his tail is still flopping around, causing havoc everywhere. And because of this decisive victory, you and I can right now in this very moment live in this fallen world that is filled with devils and demons. Martin Luther expressed this same confident hope in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He writes this, did we in our strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, 
You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And through this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear because God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. Beloved, Satan will be cast away forever and you and I will be free. Because Christ reigns as our victorious king over the powers of hell, we can now live free in this fallen world. We see the reach of Jesus and we see the reign of Jesus. Lastly, and rather quickly, we'll see the two responses to Jesus. We see the responses of Jesus. At the end of this story, we see two different responses and they reveal two different types of hearts. The first response is to leave me alone. The second response is I want to be with you. We see the first response in verse 37, it says this, then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him to depart for them for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. You see, the people respond and say to Jesus after all, of the, all that they have seen and heard, and they say, get, get away from us, leave us alone. Why do you think they respond in this way? We can say a number of things. They might be afraid of Jesus's authority. If you and I were sitting in the same uh, situation, we might be a tad bit afraid as well. It would make sense to be afraid, but it is also clear that, that, that this place uh, they feared more economic loss. You see, big pigs were big business in this area, and Jesus was disrupt disrupting that. In other words, it seems that the people cared more about what they had lost than what this man had gained or what they could gain. William Dunkerley, a journalist, wrote a poem about this passage, and I think he sums it up well. He imagines the people of the garrison speaking to Jesus, and he writes these words, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thy lovest men, we love swine. Oh, get away from us and take this fowl of thine, his soul. What do we care for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him soul, soul since we have lost our swine? Isn't that a sad picture of those who love their possessions more than they want the one who could save their souls? This man was demon-possessed, but the people were possessed by their possessions. Luke is putting pressure on us and asking, what do you value most this morning? What are you holding on to so tightly that you would prefer it over Jesus? What do you have in your life that is off limits to Jesus that if he were to come near it, you would say, leave me alone? That's the first response, but notice the second response. In verse 38, the man has been healed and freed, begs Jesus to be with him. I love that phrase and desire. Isn't that a wonderful picture of a heart that has been transformed by grace? He simply wanted to sit at Jesus' feet as a follower. 
as a disciple. He wanted nothing more to be, to be than to be with the person who could save his soul. Beloved, do you long to be with Jesus? Do you long to commune with him, to hear his word? That's all that this man wanted. He wanted to be near the one who loved him and saved his soul. Beloved, my prayer for you and for me is that we would be a people who would be known for longing to be with Jesus. That before all the programs, before all the things that we accomplish, we would desire more than anything than to be with Jesus. What's interesting in this text is Jesus tells him, no. (laughs) This man has this, this desire, I wanna be with you, Jesus. And this man says, no. Instead, Jesus sends him back to his hometown. He tells him to declare how much God has done for you. And this man does exactly that. He goes throughout the whole city proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. Friends, this man's transformation led him to tell everyone who would hear what Jesus has done for him. And beloved, that invitation and that that command is given to us as well. We are called as individuals and a, as a collective group to tell people all that Jesus has done for us. Beloved, the story of this demon-possessed man is not simply his story that we read as outsiders, but it is also our story as well. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have reached out to us in grace that instead of crushing us under your feet, you have responded in love and mercy. And Father, we also thank you that you reign over all things, particularly Satan, as a triumphant king. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the confidence that as we live in this fallen world, as we live in this this world that feels as if it's getting darker and darker, we ask that you would give us the strength to know that you have already won the battle. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.